welcome to the Psych and P podcast, where we talk all about the life and work of being a psychiatric nurse practitioner in various settings and types of practices. I'm your host, Matt Schroer, Rhymes with Flamethrower. On today's episode, we learn all about the PMHNP Fellowship with Annie. Today's episode is in no way brought to you by Rainbow Kitten Surprise, but is brought to you by an amazing grandmother. Annie, welcome. So good to see you. Good to see you too. The last time that we saw each other was, I believe, sushi. Yes. That was when we had dinner a few weeks ago, or a month ago, or whenever that was. It was cold. It was cold, but it was amazing because we had sushi. Yeah. I think there might have been some sake. That was possibly possibly there as well. Yes. Thank you so much for coming today. You are a first for us because you're two things. One is that you are a fellow in a PMHNP fellowship, but you are also the newest grad that we've had on this podcast. And yes. so I'm so excited to hear your perspective because I think a lot of people are listening to this thinking about how's it going to feel right after I'm done and hear from people like me and other people who have been doing this a while, but hearing from somebody who has really just started as of January, how that kind of feels. First off, just a little bit of background. How did you come into nursing and how did you come into working as a psych NP? Yeah, so I, like most people, I studied psychology. I loved all of my psychology classes, namely abnormal psych. I just found it super fascinating. I loved developmental psychology. I loved learning about the brain and how we develop throughout childhood. And then my senior year in college, I took a class called Drugs, Brain, and the Behavior that was a behavioral neuroscience class. And it was basically like soft psychopharmacology, but it was all the illicit substances. And I just thought it was so fascinating. <laughs> did you learn all the street names for things? I did. Yeah. yeah. I, like angel dust or... Oh my gosh, it's so important to know all of those things. <laughs> yes. It's come up more times than I thought it would. For sure. <laughs> and so I thought that was super fascinating. Just all of the things that were happening in the brain. I loved my professor's... I had a friend who mentioned that she might be applying to Yale's program for Psych NP. And yeah. I was like, what is that? I've never yeah. heard of a Psych NP before. But I got lunch with her. She told me a little bit about the role and what it would look like day to day. She had done some shadowing before. And I was like, that seems like it could be really interesting for me. I knew I always wanted to work with people that I was always clear on. I knew I couldn't do an office job where I was just at a desk all day. I knew I wouldn't do well with that. I've always been interested in talking to people, hearing their stories. And so I did a little bit of research. I found there was a eating disorder and OCD clinic in my area in Louisville, where I'm from. And I went and knocked on their door and talked to the office administrator and asked if I could shadow their psych NP. Because I didn't know what it was, but I wanted to see. Would <laughs> <laughs> like total cold call, just yeah. showed up and said hi. Yeah, shout out to my mom for that. She was like, if you're curious, just go and ask. <laughs> and so I did. And they ended up offering me kind of an internship. They'd never had an intern or a student before. But they were like, you can come do some office work and assemble some Ikea furniture for us and also shadow the psych NP when she's around. And if you can figure out how to put this Ikea furniture together, you must be pretty bright. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'll have a great future. <laughs> and so I did that for a summer and I learned a little bit about eating disorders and I learned about exposure therapy a little bit, but I mostly got to shadow a psych NP in a day in her life. And I loved the therapeutic relationships that I observed and I loved her holistic approach. And that's what really piqued my interest in the career and got my wheels turning. And 
then I started looking at programs and applied to Vanderbilt. Okay. All right. One of my other favorite facts about you is you were a collegiate swimmer as well. I was. And so just the amount of dedication that it takes to be a college athlete is always just mind boggling to me. So I'm always fascinated by that as well. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. And I think it it served me really well. And it still continues to serve me well in a lot of areas. Just that getting up early, those early mornings in January, walking to the pool with snow on the ground, they definitely taught me a lot of lessons. Yeah. And it helps when you have to be at the hospital very early in the morning that you're used to getting up that early. Absolutely. It translated very well into clinicals and nursing school. For sure. Talk to me about, because you and I talked a lot when you were a student about where should I go? What should I do? What kinds of jobs should I have? And then you decided on a fellowship. So talk through that decision and what a fellowship meant for you and why that versus a clinic position or something like that. Sure. I think when I was thinking about a setting that I wanted to practice in as a new grad, the most important thing on my list was feeling supported and feeling like I had a lot of people I could go to when I inevitably was lost and didn't know what to do. Or I just had a case that I wanted to bounce ideas off of someone else who had more experience. And so the idea of a fellowship was really appealing and that I knew I'd have built in support. I would have a lot of people there just on my side and able to support me in that transition. And I would have the opportunity to have ongoing education opportunities. Yeah. That was really exciting to me and a nice just transition year as I'm starting out. For Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to be able to have that built in guidance and know that I'm not going to be thrown out into the clinic and then all of a sudden turn around and nobody's here on a Friday afternoon Mm -hmm. or something like that. Or sometimes places will say, oh, absolutely, this other person will be here for you to collaborate with and talk with. But then it turns out that they're really at a different clinic 100 miles away (laughs) down the state. And like you could maybe chat with them on like some on Google chat or something (laughs) like that or call them. But sometimes they don't answer. So I It probably is really nice knowing that there is built in time for collaboration and discussion, case discussion, but also those kinds of continuing ed things. So doing grand rounds and presentations and all that sort of stuff has to be really nice to be able to just continue to feed your brain with stuff. Absolutely. And I think there's so much value in presenting a case to other nurse practitioners or MDs that I work with and saying, okay, here's what I'm thinking. How does that sound to you? What have you seen be helpful in patients you've had in the past? Because right now I'm still at the point where every patient I see, it's like the first time I'm seeing something. And I'm like, I haven't had someone complain of ticks on Prozac yet. What have you asked in the past? What should I be ruling out? What should Mm -hmm. I be thinking about? And when it is right in front of you, sometimes those things that we learn about tidbits in nursing school They don't always come back to you. So just having people there who have that built-in experience that they can pull from of what they've asked for or what they've used in the past can be really helpful as you're still building your own foundation. Yeah. And it's impossible to learn every single possible thing that you need (laughs) to know in school because you're not going to be exposed to every different kind of thing. You're not going to be all these weird kind of one-off cases that like happen every once in a while, but don't happen very commonly and be like, Oh yeah. Okay. So let's talk through this. Right. One of the other kind of unique things about a fellowship in having never done one, but had several students have done them is just exposure to a lot of different environments and practice settings. So talk about that and talk about the draw of that and how that's been so far and that kind of thing. 
Yeah, that was another huge draw for me is to get more experience in different settings and see where I might feel my practice philosophy best aligns. I hadn't had a ton of experience inpatient prior to starting out. And I also had done most of my training at a PHP program, which is different from a lot of other settings. Sure. So it was really interesting to think, oh, I could get more experience just in the outpatient setting as well. The way that the fellowship I'm in is structured is it's three four-month-long rotations. The first one is inpatient mm-hmm. primarily. The second one is doing consult liaison work at the children's hospital. Okay. So seeing patients who are medically hospitalized but might need a psych provider consulted for whatever they're going through. So important. So important. Because like half of those beds sometimes are just holding pens for psych patients waiting for beds and having somebody that can come by and round on them and not just waste time like, all right, I'm going to put a sitter with you and hope you hope something bad doesn't happen. And what a waste of time when they could be getting help and getting some treatment. So hopefully that's something that you'll be able to do. Absolutely. That service actually is really of interest for me. I feel like It brings a more holistic approach oftentimes to those kids' care. So I'm really excited about that rotation. And then my last four months will be all outpatient. But you've been sprinkling in outpatient as well. Yes. So every Thursday throughout the 12 months is outpatient. Seeing my own caseload of patients. And so that has been pretty exciting too to sprinkle in. Nice. So talk about what a typical kind of day looks like for you. And that probably changes a little bit based on where you are, but what it's been like so far. So I just wrapping up my first almost, yeah, first four months of my rotation. So I just completed my inpatient rotation. So the structure that we've been working with so far is Monday through Wednesday, I'm inpatient all day. Thursdays, I'm outpatient in the clinic. And then Fridays, I'm back inpatient. So typical day inpatient, we are rounding on all of our patients in the mornings, seeing all of them, usually seeing everyone for about 20 minutes. Then we have treatment team where we discuss each patient with the social work team and talk about coordination of care, discharge planning. And then we also devote time in the afternoons to calling each of our kids' parents and updating them. And then the rest of the time is spent charting, responding to Things that go on the unit throughout the day, and there are oftentimes, there's a lot of things going on. They keep us really busy. Have you put the lunar phases on your watch yet? I have not. You should. I think there is something to that now after being inpatient and getting to know some seasoned nurses who have worked there for some time. They all definitely. Yeah, when full moon's coming. Absolutely. And the full moon's on a Friday, you better buckle up because it's about to get spicy. Yeah, that Monday morning report is typically pretty. Yeah. Eventful. Yeah. When I worked at the hospital, it was definitely like over the weekends when you got all kinds of admissions, it was definitely like, oh, this is like a lot. And then Monday was definitely a big day because that's when everybody came back and all sorts of stuff started happening. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Talk about your inpatient experience a little bit. And because you didn't have really any inpatient, you had partial, which is can be very intense in the level of treatment that's happening. But I just remember working inpatient and I worked on Christmas and I worked in the adolescent unit and I wasn't a nurse. I was just a tech But it really fell on the text to really because the nurses didn't want to be there and they were just like passing meds. But I did all the groups that day and it was like, man, this is Christmas Day and I'm on an adolescent unit. And who wants to be in the psych hospital on Christmas? And it was just I just remember being like, man, 
I get to leave at the end of the day. And like, it sucks that I haven't been able to spend Christmas with my family during the day, but I get to leave Mm. at three o'clock and then go have Christmas with my family. And just to me, that was just the epitome of, man, this work is hard. Mm. Like being in this place is really tough and seeing people at their worst rather than me having the luxury of doing outpatient work a lot of times get to see people at their best when things have been really awful, but then the sunlight's starting to poke through. You start to see some improvement and not that you don't see that impatience. It's hard. So like, how have you reconciled that? Yeah, really good question. It's been really challenging. I think shifting my mindset to the goals of an inpatient stay and those typically being stabilization of a crisis And also preparing for a safe discharge, recognizing that for a lot of these kids, this is their first contact with treatment and you're establishing care. With a lot of kids, we've seen kids who have been in the hospital numerous times that year and are chronically hospitalized for suicidality. And so that aspect has been really challenging. Like you were saying, meeting kids in the middle of a crisis, walking with their families through that experience can be really hard. And typically we don't see a whole lot of improvement while they're with us. A lot of those changes are made after they leave the hospital when the work really begins with family therapy and individual therapy. And so that can be really hard. Just meeting kids where they are in the middle of a crisis when they oftentimes had a recent suicide attempt or came into the hospital with suicidal ideation And just encountering that conversation all day, every day definitely takes its toll. Yeah. And a a lot of those therapeutic modalities that they get in the like kind of partial hospitalization programs or outpatient therapy, there's not a lot of space for that in the inpatient setting. Mm. They do get groups, which oftentimes can be really helpful for kind of brief interventions, like learning about coping skills for the first time. Hugely helpful. Super important. But a lot of that intense individual therapy, trauma-focused therapy, doesn't really start until outpatient care begins. So that can be And it takes months, too. And it's a long journey to unpack all of that. And we know that treatment isn't linear, but it's hard to meet people at their lowest point. Yeah, yeah. And so starting out as a new provider, seeing really acute patients in crisis every day is hard. Yeah. Yeah. When your lens is... I remember when my wife was pregnant and seeing sick kids every single day at my practice. Oh, my gosh, my kid is going to have all these things and going to have all these problems. Like when you're everything that you see is then everyone has to be like this, too. It tends to be tough to think about, gosh, how this is really dark and not getting to see the positive things that happen. So what have been some good things about inpatient that you've seen? Sprinkled in, there have been a lot of moments of joy and of reconciliation between family members and really important conversations. I think the best part for me typically is those discharge family meetings where Mm. family members come in, we bring the kid in, and we all talk about changes that are going to be made, plans for going home, what needs to happen to make them feel safer at home, what they need from parents, what they need from school. And those conversations typically feel, for the most part, like we have a plan moving forward. And and kids are typically really excited to go home. Yeah. The hard days 
on the other end of that are when it doesn't feel so great sending a kid home and when families don't seem super bought in to following through with the plans. Yeah. But I think some of my favorite memories have been those really beautiful moments where families embrace their kids after a week or two of being apart, even if they're visiting every day, now knowing that, okay, you're coming home and we're going to keep you safe and here's how we're going to do that and we're going to be checking in on you more and we want to get you involved in xyz and we're working through our stuff and we're going to be in therapy as well yeah those are the changes that feel really hopeful and Mm -hmm. that it feels really good yeah to see changes being made yeah and families that are really on board with those i think that's one of the really unique things about child and adolescent work too is this focus on family because kids are and everyone's heard me say this a million times but kids are identified patients of very sick family systems a lot of times and so to see those glimmers of, okay, yeah, we're going to try and make some changes. We've realized that some of the things that have gone on, some of the things that have happened have not been totally your fault. And how do we work on this together? Whereas in an adult setting, it's good luck. I hope hope you follow through. Yeah. And I hope that the people around you, you can explain those things to them that I feel like you don't necessarily get as much of when you're working with adults versus working with kids and it makes it more complicated too because then you have to like you got to juggle a lot of personalities Mm -hmm. and then juggle a lot of feelings and emotions and desires and frustration Mm -hmm. like all those kinds of things working on that stuff together and i would imagine that in an inpatient setting those things are cranked up to 10 absolutely the families in crisis something that i have found rewarding is serving as that mediator and kind of the translator for the kids to relay those changes that they've expressed they feel they would be helpful at home and being able to relay those to the parents in a way that they are going to receive it. For sure. And what a beautiful moment to be able to be that person for somebody and helping them find their voice when maybe they felt like they couldn't speak up before. And sometimes really great things happen from really bad situations. And hopefully that is for some of those families, a little bit of a a wake up call to, whoa, okay, like we got to really work on this stuff because that was scary. What happened? Absolutely. Sadly, that's a very common conversation of we had no idea he was struggling for so long. Like he compensated so well. He's an A student. He's involved in all these things. Like how did we miss this? That's yeah. a really common conversation. And it's a lot of like psychoeducation and just unfortunately, yeah, it does open the floodgates until he has been compensating well. And also now, how are we going to support him and check in on him more and make sure that he feels safe to, to share when he is? And mm-hmm. how can he ask for help? And how we, can we make that easier for him? But yeah, those are some good moments. Yeah. And I would also imagine having the resources available to you in an inpatient setting is probably pretty nice too. Absolutely. Our social work team is phenomenal. And I am always so amazed by the work that they do in acquiring services for kids and just offering different options to families and really working with them to see what is going to be best for them and also realistic for what they can actually follow through on. Sure. Because sometimes the therapy burden in a single household can be large and making sure that the plans are realistic and also what's best for the kid and for the family. So compare and contrast that with your outpatient day. Outpatient day, it's structured very differently. I'm in a clinic setting. We have a wonderful nursing staff who is just super helpful in coordinating things that 
I might not have time to get to like school notes and things like that, but I am seeing patients. A lot of them are new patients since I'm still building my caseload. So doing mm-hmm. lots of intakes, yeah. <laughs> which are longer appointments, especially for me as I'm not always the most concise yet, <laughs> still working on my flow, Yeah. but I'm able to meet with patients individually and then directly pop over to my supervisor's office and kind of briefly present our conversation and the patient and my initial thoughts on a plan if we're considering starting a medication and then get some immediate feedback on that plan and make adjustments and think about things in different perspectives. And that has been super helpful Yeah. and really was the main pull of doing the fellowship to begin with. So it's really great that I've been able to receive feedback on those days and instantaneously instantaneously feeling really supported feeling safe about the decisions that i'm making and i'll typically see anywhere between like three to seven patients a day varies but most of them have 10 care or don't have insurance and so that can that feels really rewarding Mm, 10 care is tennessee's medicaid by the way for those of you from outside of yeah. Yes. I wouldn't have area. known that before yeah. living in Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> but that, those days are good. They're, they do feel a little bit more overwhelming to me at times just because I'm like, oh my goodness, these are my patients mm-hmm. and I'm leading the interview by myself. There's no one here looking over my shoulder <laughs> the way that it feels when you're doing your NP year in school. But those days can feel really good too. And just, I'm starting to see patients again for a second and third time. And so I'm starting to build those relationships, which yeah. is something that initially excited me most about this role. Yeah. So I feel like I'm just now starting to get to that place where I can, Hey, I remember we talked about that band recital you were, you had coming up. How'd that go? That's the aspect that is starting to become really enjoyable for me. But those days can feel overwhelming just because it feels more independent. Sure. But I still do have a supervisor right there yeah. if I am struggling or completely lost. Yeah. And I think that I'm I'm really glad that you're saying that because it sometimes when you're done and I've passed this really hard exam and I've done all these hours and I've done this stuff and like now it's me making these decisions and you're like, oh, my gosh, I feel like I should know all this stuff. And I feel like I should be able to 100 percent of the time hit a home run mm-hmm. every single time I get to bat. And that's not the case. And so I appreciate you saying that it's, it is a learning process. Yeah. And even though I'm new, a lot of the patients that I'm seeing are still pretty, pretty sick kids. Yeah. And a lot of them have tried a lot of medications Mm -hmm. and have, some of them have been hospitalized multiple times. And so it's still, I'm new, but I'm also seeing really sick kids. And so that makes it over- yeah. Really overwhelming, too. And makes it more complicated. You and I were talking before we started recording about just the acuity of people, of patients now. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely increased since I started mm-hmm. back in 2008. They're definitely sicker. Mm-hmm. And I think we could attribute that to all kinds of things. I think coming out of the pandemic sure. and everybody was like, what in absolute blazes just happened? Mm-hmm. And everything that went haywire as a result And just, I think, our divisiveness that's happening right now. And it's just a real hard time to be a kid. And and the proliferation of social media and disinformation and all that kind of stuff just stirs everyone up. When I was a kid, bullying stopped at 3 o'clock when you went home. And you could go home to a safe place, hopefully a safe place, but where people didn't harass you. 
But now it's 24-7. And so it just makes it so much more complicated to be a kid. And the anonymity of being able to bully someone digitally makes it so that you're probably a little bit more savage than you would be if you were staring someone directly in the eye saying those things. The psychology and probably more sociology research that's going to happen in 100 years about our time, I think, is going to be pretty fascinating, just given how complex everything has been. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about one of the unique things about a fellowship is this kind of teaching component. So talk through that a little bit and how that's been good and how you feel like that's been beneficial and maybe how that's unique, more unique to you than somebody who took a clinic position in a community mental health center, for instance. I think for me, it's been really beneficial to have cases that I can present to multiple people and get lots of different perspectives on next steps and what they would be thinking about and follow up questions they would ask. I think having that built in has been really nice. I also have had the opportunity to attend psychiatry grand rounds and getting ongoing education with all sorts of different fascinating topics. Like we had one last week on delirium, which isn't something I'm seeing a whole lot of, but as I move to consults, might you become will. a lot more relevant. Yeah, right? yeah. And so that's been really fascinating, having kind of that continued education element built in as well. And additionally, I, every week I have a set apart time to talk about difficult cases that are coming up. Some weeks we review like a peer-reviewed journal article on something in the literature that's okay relevant to something I've been seeing in clinic. Other times we'll just go through DSM case studies. (laughs) It's always good to just brush up on those kind of things. For sure. And so all of those things in culmination have been really helpful and just continuing to feel like I'm gaining that foundation, Mm -hmm. building my knowledge and testing myself frequently with things from school trying to stay fresh on yeah. things that I'm not seeing every day. And it's probably nice to learn things without having to take an exam later on. Oh, that's the best part. <laughs> <laughs> you can just learn because you want to learn yeah, rather than because I have to. Absolutely. Yeah. Being a fellow, how do you feel like the other members of the team view you or treat you or that sort of thing? How do you feel about that? I think it's different inpatient versus outpatient, I'll say. Okay. I think on one hand, I'm the first psych NP fellow that they've had. So I think most people are like, wait, what are you doing again? Who are you? Are you a nurse? Are you an NP? And I'm like, I am an NP, but I'm an NP fellow. Yeah. So I'm fully licensed and accredited, but I do have all these other people that are helping me out. Sure. And so I think inpatient, there's been some confusion about my role and just where I fall on the team. But I will say, I don't feel like anyone has treated me less than or different more so just wait what are you doing again yeah are you staying are you rotating are you like a resident in that way a lot of those questions but everyone has been very welcoming and then outpatient I feel like the clinic I'm in is very NP led and I very much have felt like an independent provider I felt very supported by the nursing staff there the administrative staff has been wonderful and then even though I do have this supervisor just an office away from me she's really empowered me to feel confident in my decisions and also just my day-to-day while I'm in the clinic. Good. It's so important to have kind of that first collaborating physician, if you require, that is teaching-oriented and is supportive of and remembers what it was like to be new because they were new at some point too and hopefully had somebody that treated them kindly and with respect and said, oh, you're learning. That's okay. And we all have to learn 
at some point and we can't all be experts straight out of the gate. And so having that person, it's so important. So as you're looking for jobs and looking for roles, being able to connect with that person, if your state requires that is huge. And I would say if your state doesn't require that, finding some type of mentor that you can do those sorts of things with, because nothing feels worse than making a decision and then being like, I hope that was good. Totally. That feels bad. And not being able to get some reassurance from someone that like, yes, that was the right decision to make. Yeah. Yeah. And even if it's not mandated that you have a supervising physician, just getting plugged in with other NPs who have a little bit more experience than you is hugely helpful. And just Mm -hmm. what have you done for this? What have you seen? Did I think about this in the right way? Because sometimes... For me, all the times, you're going to need reassurance. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to want that and not in a way that's unhelpful, but more so just did I really think about everything in the way that I should be? Did I miss anything? Would you have thought of anything differently? I think that can actually be very helpful as you're starting out. Yes. And as you probably are battling a lot of imposter syndrome, and I know that for me that has been a big uh, barrier in just the past, starting out past four months, just a lot of did I miss anything? Sure. Did I ask this in the right way? Did I say that in a completely unhelpful, wrong way? Replaying a lot of those conversations. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from people who remember being new. That does get better with time and that it's pretty normal. Yeah. And I do know that it's because I care and it's because I want to be doing a good job. Yeah. But it doesn't make it any easier on those long days when you do get home and you're like, wait, did I miss this? Yeah. When they mentioned that one thing, should I have dug in more there? Mm-hmm. But Something that I do hold on to really tightly is something that Matt used to always tell us while we were in school is just that you cannot be all things to all people. And I think that especially as a new provider, sometimes I find myself feeling really overwhelmed by the desire to just address everything and fix everything in the appointment. Like someone is coming to you in distress and in a very low place most of the time. And so you're going to want to intervene and you're going to see them and you're going to want to act. And I think that sometimes that can be really paralyzing, like wanting to fix everything in the moment. Yeah. But that's not psychiatry. Like it's gray and it's a process and it's our job to walk with them through that, that period of time. And And it's also not really healthcare. A lot of times if you go see your primary care provider and you've got all seven different things going on, they're not like, all right, here's 14 medicines that you should start taking. It's let's connect you with this person. Let's connect you with this person to address this and talk about this. And yeah, and but I remember that. Oh my gosh, these people are, like you said, coming in distress and I've got to fix this. And just the burden of that and the magnitude of that responsibility feels overwhelming sometimes. But it does get better when you start thinking, okay, so here's my lane. Mm -hmm. These are the things that I can address. These are the things that I can fix now. But honestly, like part of my job is teaching you how to address those things. Absolutely. And that's sometimes really hard to figure out and to really think about because people are like, I just want to make it go away and I just want it to stop. And as you said, you're a caring person and you want those things to stop for that person. But sometimes it's, you really have to fix that. Yeah. And like we always say, like the meds oftentimes just allow us to do better work in therapy. And so I'm always advocating for them to continue therapy, to start therapy and planting those seeds because I know that's going to offer the best response with the medications. But 
those times can be hard just in that feeling overwhelmed and wanting to intervene in the moment, but also, yeah, trying to equip them with the skills to help themselves. And especially with my adolescent patients, I feel like I'll push back a little bit more about what really do you want to address and what are your specific goals? It's harder with the younger kids where you're mostly talking through the parents and Mm -hmm. they're like, fix them. Yeah. Like, yeah. Make them not such a pain to me anymore. It's like, they're not a pain to you. They're developmentally appropriate and doing all the things they're supposed to do. They're just responding to chaos and trauma and all those sorts of things. And that made me think of a phrase I use a lot when somebody's coming to you and there's this thing wrong with them and you're like, I have a medicine that could address that. But sometimes it's like just because you can doesn't always mean that you should. And sometimes you're creating more of a problem for someone later on by prescribing something or doing some intervention that ultimately is going to hinder this person more rather than help them. This kind of short-term fix creates a long-term problem. I think I'm acutely aware of that working with young brains and thinking about just other things and factors at play right now and looking at the whole picture. What's going on for real at Mm -hmm. school? What are those kids really telling you? And what's going on with, with brother or with your parents? Yeah. So you had a mental picture of this whole thing before you started. What has surprised you about this whole process so far? That's a really good question. I think I've been surprised by, I maybe went into it thinking, okay, I'm going to get a lot more comfortable with the medications. I'm going to learn more about titrating and cross tapering and specific uses for all these medications. I really feel like the bulk of my education so far has been in other things like navigating difficult conversations with parents and family members, almost more with like coordination of care and talking with those social workers and the things that they have to think through and the issues that they resolve. Thinking about how I can facilitate my kids getting more services at school. Those kind of things I feel like I've learned a lot more about than specific medication things. Yeah. Which I'm really grateful for and has been a pleasant surprise because all of these things are super important in being a holistic provider. And I do think it's important to know our scope and our role, but I also have really enjoyed thinking about collaborating with other people on their care team. And that has been maybe something that I wasn't fully expecting going into it. Yeah. Thinking about that makes me think that really the hard parts of this job aren't the really technical parts of it. Yeah. Learning these doses and max doses, cross taper titrating and all those kinds of things. It's important to know, but like the really hard things are how do I sit and be a human being with this person in a way that is meaningful and therapeutic mm-hmm. with them that is probably is way harder than like how much Prozac do I give this person and how do I stop their effects or in a way that doesn't make them feel like trash. Mm, oh. Hot trash. Yeah. Hot trash. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad you said that. And I think that's something that we lose sight of sometimes is we think the really important things are the really technical aspects of this job, but that just comes with time. Yeah. You know, at some point you won't have to look up those things anymore but you'll still struggle sometimes with saying the right thing at the right time and questioning yourself. Did I say the right thing at the right? I mean, all the time I'm like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said it like that. I probably should have addressed something in this way. I missed that. I doing those types of things where, you know, I feel 
pretty good about prescribing now. I don't feel like I am going to miss something prescribing at this point. But like, those are the things that are still honestly, I think more helpful in the long run. Medicine's great. Medicine's fine. Whatever. It does decent things. But I think the true gift of this job is being present for people and being there for someone who may not have anyone there for them in a meaningful way otherwise. And not to put more responsibility on you, but it is part of the real gift of this job and what we really give to people. Yeah. We are given such a amazing opportunity to meet people in the lowest places of their life and provide support. Mm. And I do, even if I don't feel confident about my interview or if I ask this in the right way, I do try to just be present and just listen and just provide a space for people. And at the end of the day, I try to remind myself that in and of itself has value. And a lot of times is enough. You listen to me. You heard me. And like I said earlier, you helped me find my voice when I didn't feel like I had one before. And that's great. And that's so important and so huge in so many ways for people who just feel like everything is against them and everything is mounting on top of them and that their problems are impossible. And having someone say, I got you and I'm going to hear you. You're not in this alone anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so powerful and so great. I know you've just started again, and I'm throwing all these kind of, I know you've just started questions at you, but has there been anything that you've said, I wish that I knew that when I first began this whole process and I wish that Matt would have taught me this in school instead of wasting my time with lots of other things? I feel like the first thing that comes to mind isn't super technical about our role, it's more so, I think, applicable to anyone starting out in a new role that seems really overwhelming is that I wish I would have allowed myself to ask for help earlier. Okay. Whether that be due to just my own imposter syndrome or feeling the need to really prove myself with my first job, I mm -hmm. think that it took me a while to feel comfortable advocating for myself, even with all these built-in supports and people I knew I could go to. Sure. Not wanting to ask for more and not wanting to seek too much reassurance. Mm -hmm. I think that I almost got in my own way a little bit in that way. So I think that I wish I would have just told myself when I was starting out, ask for help. If things aren't working, make adjustments. Yeah. Because it is really overwhelming starting right. out. Yeah. And you're going to be put in situations that feel really scary. But you're never alone in those. And you always have people that you can reach out to. And yeah. I think that it maybe took me a little bit longer than it needed to realize that fully. But it did get to a point where I was really overwhelmed. And it was a couple weeks of back-to-back -back just high levels of anxiety. And I was like, something needs to change. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. And so I had a meeting with my supervisor. And I was like, look, I... For whatever reason, I'm not coping well with being inpatient all day, every day, and only having one day outpatient. Like, it doesn't feel like I'm getting my footing outpatient because I have a week in between practicing this set of skills, and yeah. it feels a little disjointed. Like, the setting is so different. Yeah. And she was like, absolutely, that makes a whole lot of sense. And then we modified my schedule to add another afternoon outpatient to facilitate me just feeling like I'm actually progressing on those outpatient days. For sure. And I was like, oh my goodness, I could have asked for this earlier. Yeah. And I just 
was maybe prideful or just wanted to. I think a lot of times we just like, okay, I'll go with the flow and see what happens and like just assume that this is how it has to be. But you advocated for yourself and you said, no, I need this thing and this I'm struggling in this area and I feel like I need some assistance in this. And I think that's the best thing that you could do. And again, you only started a few months ago. So, you know, saying I wish I had done this sooner. You pretty much did it when you were supposed to do it. I think you gave yourself enough time to be like, okay, no, things need to I need to make some adjustments in this way. And being able to have people around you who support you in that decision making is huge. And so surrounding yourself with people who can help you in making modifications to things if you need to, because this job doesn't have to feel awful. And it doesn't. It's hard. It is hard. There's no bones about it. Like this work is difficult and this work is hard. And some days you may go home in tears. And some days you may be like, that was an awesome day. And Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed what I did. And that was fun. And I got to see some people do some great things. And some days are just like, "Eh, that was Monday, meh, whatever. But being able to say, I need this thing and to go back to asking for help is huge, is so huge. And even if you've been doing this for a while, I had a teacher in my program who I adored. And one of her famous phrases was, you don't practice in a vacuum. There are other people out there who can help and who can assist and who have done it before and have been down that road and say, you need to duck when you turn this corner because there's a branch that's going to hit you in the face when you turn the corner. And so knowing that that those people exist and they're out there is just huge. And I'm glad that you've been advocating for yourself. It's not always easy when you're starting out something Mm -hmm. new, but I realized early on that ultimately I'm not going to be the provider I want to be if I'm not taking care of myself. Yeah. Yeah. So that dovetails nicely into how do you practice self-care? Yes. So as a new grad, so important to do because I don't know if the post school anxiety has worn off yet. Do you still wake up in the middle of the night feeling like you have to write a paper or is that faded at this point? That's faded. Now the anxiety just wears a different hat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But yeah, self-care is so important. I got into some pretty good routines while I was in nursing school, and I've made some modifications, but it's always been getting outside for me. In the winter months in Tennessee, when the sun sets at 4 p.m., that's always really hard for me. We made it through winter. It's Mm -hmm. now spring. The sun is out. It's 80 degrees today, so we're doing well. But I got to get outside. I got to touch grass and look at a tree Mm -hmm. and listen to a bird sing and go on a ridiculous amount of walks. I'm not really a morning person, even though I did used to swim at 5 a.m. I'm not innately a morning person, but what I've been doing since I've started this role is I'm getting up earlier than I need to give myself a morning before my day starts Nice. so that I just have some time to make breakfast, look outside, drink my coffee, be a human, and then start my day feeling balanced. Because once the day starts... Who knows what's going to happen? It can oftentimes feel chaotic and busy, and I don't sit down for a couple hours. So giving myself some time devoted to just taking care of myself, loving on myself in the morning has been really helpful. And yeah, getting outside, exercising, hanging out with friends, hanging out with some of my friends that don't work at all in healthcare. Yes, that's very nice. <laughs> and don't really know what I do, mm-hmm. and I don't really tell them what I do. Yeah, because at some point it's like, I just need to shut this off. And when you get together with other MPs or other healthcare people like you, inevitably the conversation goes there. And sometimes like, I can't talk shop anymore right now. Yeah. Yeah. Watching trashy reality TV shows, 
turning off my brain, probably rotting my brain. No, it's just the counterbalance of the incredibly stimulating stuff you're doing all day long. Equilibrium. (laughs) Yes, yes. That's me in YouTube videos about guitars and cameras. Ugh, all the cameras. (laughs) Tell me about your how your family has responded to you being in this role and your job and all that kind of stuff. My family's been amazing. They are very supportive. I don't know if they fully understand what I'm doing, which is fine. <laughs> I've explained it. I think they do finally understand what a psych NP is. Good. Which is awesome. Yes. We'll take it. A fellowship within side of that is a lot for anyone <laughs> outside of healthcare. And we even, just got these words down. We You're throwing extra ones at us now. Totally. Yeah. Everyone's, wait, so what are you doing again? They're super supportive. I keep it vague with them. Hey, I had a hard day today. Yeah. And they, uh, yeah, they reach out. We chat on the phone. They live in Kentucky, so they're a couple hours away. But they've been awesome about checking in and being supportive when they can and just offering me a lot of encouragement, which has been awesome. Yeah. So it's having people around you is really important. And I know my wife and I both talk. Thank God our home life mm-hmm. is not chaotic because if we had the work that we both do, if we had to come home to chaos, like how miserable that would be. Oh, that's so important. Like your life outside of work, having people that feel safe and that you can just relax and be yourself with Mm -hmm. is so important with the work that we do. And all day we pour our emotions into other people. And so having people that just fill your cup back up. Yes. And I've been really lucky to have a community here in Nashville that I built through nursing school and just through meeting people in the community just out and about. I feel like I found that here and is ultimately what led to my decision to even stay in Nashville after graduating from Vanderbilt's program. I was yeah. like, I can't leave these people. Yeah. Cause you were like, you were thinking Hawaii at some point. Yeah, I was like, I've got to get out of here. And I was secretly like, please go to Hawaii. So I have an excuse to go to Hawaii. Never say never. Yeah. It still might happen one day, <laughs> <laughs> but it really is the people that you surround yourself with. For sure. I've been really lucky to find some awesome people that have been able to help me implement that self-care and just get out of my own head and be a person. Yeah, it's so important to have a community because this work will, like you said, takes a lot out of you. And so having people who fill you up at the same time. Yes. How's Yaya doing? Fabulous. My Yaya is just amazing. She's out in Albuquerque thriving. She's a wonderful person. Yes. All right. So. I know you're a music lover like I am. So I am. Tell me about your songs that you chose. Yeah. So the prompt that you gave me for this podcast was songs that make you think about like our role and Mm -hmm. also mental health and also like self-care. Yes. And so I love moody, indie, alternative music. Always have since middle school. In fifth grade, my favorite band was Green Day. And I was just always... Loving my dad's music, but this playlist is a mix. I have some Phoebe Bridgers on there, who is just known for some really awesome emotional music, mm-hmm. fabulous lyrics. Yeah. One of my favorite songs I have on here is by Yeba. I think she is one of the best voices of our generation. She's incredibly talented. She wrote this song called October Sky, which is about her mother who struggled with depression. Okay. And I think ultimately passed away from suicide. Okay. And so it's a beautiful song about growing up in that household and her relationship with her mom and the grief around that. Yeah. And we got some 
Rainbow Kitten Surprise. I'm always going to be a fan of them. I love the name. Yeah. yeah. A, that's a have fabulous bit. No, I've not. It's a wonderful band name. Awesome band. They have a song called Painkillers about just coping with being human. Okay. Yeah. All right. We Found Each Other in the Dark by City and Color. It's a song about finding hope in dark times and like human connection and friendship that comes out of struggling. So, yeah. Some good tunes on there. Love it. You mentioned Angel Dust earlier, and that made me think of my favorite, Faith No More, who has an album called Angel Dust that has its, gosh, when is that there? Did it come out 30 years ago? I think it's 30 years or something or 25 years. I don't know. When did that come out? Anyway, it was a long time ago. It was older than you. Yes. But <laughs> that made me think of, of the mighty Faith No More and the album Angel Dust was just fantastic. So maybe I'll plug in a few Angel Dust favorites on that playlist as well. Love it. Yes. But I love the way that art and music in particular can just capture emotion mm-hmm. in ways that I think other art forms really lack sometimes. And not to say that movies and photography and visual art and those types of things can't do that, but you really can hear someone's soul in music a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's amazing how one story portrayed through lyrics can touch so many people and can Mm -hmm. normalize so many experiences that feel in the moment so unique to us, but are sometimes universal. Yeah. Feeling lonely or feeling helpless at certain points, Mm -hmm. being able to do something that you would think is joyful, like singing about it, I think has a way of, I don't know, giving it hope and giving it. And just how cathartic it can be for the artist as well to, to put all of these complex emotions into something that feels tangible and rather than ethereal and difficult to nail down, but I can get it out through lyrics and music and those kinds of things. Yeah. A way of externalizing what you're going through. Yeah. Love it. It's great. Love it. Yes. Annie, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a real pleasure. Thank um, you so much for having me. And I'm me. so proud of all of the things that you're doing. I know that sometimes you may feel like, oh my gosh, this work is so hard, but I know you're doing such a phenomenal job. And these kids and these people are so lucky to have you. And just thank you for doing what you do because you're doing amazing. That means so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yes.